0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. We won't be talking about generative AI or ChatGPT. GPT, we think. And more importantly, <laughs> we won't be talking about what's going on with tech companies in the market. No, actually, we will. Um, hey, we're going to do some quick introductions. I'm here with my amazing host founder, Bala Afshar. We've got our amazing producer here as well, L, and of course, some great guests. So, um, Paulo, uh, what are we talking about today? Where are you coming in from? Thank you for
1: hosting me. My, uh, I, uh, I'm i going to talk about my book, The Four Workarounds. And I'm an associate professor at Oxford University.
0: Thank Wonderful. You. Hey, thank you for coming in from Oxford and during pub time. Durage, Dharaj, what time, uh, where are you in? What time zone are you in, hopefully? No, just kidding. You're not in Oxford. I'm right here in uh, what are you now. talking about today and what are you talking about? So. Well,
2: we're talking about Tommy, uh, right here in Palo Alto. And we're going to talk about. Uh, the role of AI in uh, all things enterprise it's the du jour yeah and uh, before this uh, I was at Nutanix so we'll talk about some other things about entrepreneurship too.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, it's amazing stuff around business, entrepreneurship and the stuff you've been doing through different startups. So thank you. So Jason, where are we coming yeah. in from? What are we talking about?
3: We're coming in from downtown Palo Alto, um, the old heart of startups and software, uh, having abandoned our San Francisco office a while back. Um, and we're going to talk. We're only going to talk about AI. No, no, no. I'm, we're going to talk about, I guess we're going to talk about venture capital, fundraising, um, what what's happening in innovation in today's world um and uh maybe a little bit about community and 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 saster and thousands of founders getting together
0: Hey, nothing better than that so we're in the heart of innovation well hey that's where we are we're going to jump in for those following around please definitely check out our handles and uh Elle, take it away
1: all right three two one <music>
4: Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, (laughs) He's on TV every day. I see him on Bloomberg, CNN, Fox. Uh, he's a sought-after keynote speaker. In my humble opinion, I'm a top futurist to follow on Twitter at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt
0: TV. Hey, thanks a lot. With my amazing co-host, Vala Ashtar, who is the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce, but he's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets, and when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as we say every week, it's not about our amazing backgrounds. It's about our amazing guests and the people that come on the show, and who do we have to kick it off today,
4: it's always about the guest. And we're thrilled to have Jason Lemkin, a 2x founder who now runs SASTER, the world's largest community for B2B SaaS founders, and is the managing director of SASTER Fund, a $150 million venture capital firm focused on early stage enterprise investments. SASTER's goal is to help business leaders get from zero to 100 million ARR with less stress and more success. I love that. Jason has led or sourced the first VC investments in many leading enterprise SaaS startups. Collectively, Ray, get a hold of this. Collectively, the startups that Jason has invested in have valuations of over a billion dollars.
3: No, no, no. Uh, that's 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 old school. Two
4: billion, three billion. What no, is it, Jason? Oh,
3: no, probably sixteen billion today. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, I got so the, many the, the, talk internet, the internet. Internet ages. Internet ages. You know, it's, it's <laughs> weird, internet ages. I'm going to send yeah. you the link.
4: GPT 20. That's amazing! Wow, stunning, stunning, stunning. Saster has been named stunning. one of the top 100 blogs for entrepreneurs by Forbes. One of the 50 best websites for entrepreneurs by Inc. Magazine. Jason has been named by Business Insider the 32 most powerful big people in business technology. I don't think that's old, but. That's yeah. it's true. Uh,
3: shake. When uh, I type, they shake. <laughs> that, type, that's yeah. powerful. What I think is that powerful. There's just an echo. Uh, oh, I,
4: I love that. Uh, before Saster and VC Investing, Jason was CEO and co-founder of, co-founder of Ecosign, the web's most popular electronic signature service from inception through its acquisition through Adobe. Prior to and Adobe, Jason was co-foundered one of the only successes in nanotechnology, nanogram devices, which was acquired for $50 million just in 13 months after it was founded. The technology built into implantable power cells has gone on to help extend the lives of thousands. You can follow Jason on Twitter. Awesome, awesome follow on Twitter, JasonLK. Welcome, Jason, to Disrupt TV.
3: I had to cut your bio
4: short. We only have 20
3: and minutes. And I got I to gotta update that bio. It's a good one, but I got I to gotta, gotta get it a little more succinct and brought down to 2023.
4: Totally. My, my apologies. No, no, my
0: apologies. It's okay. ChatGP is running at 2021, 20, so we're still doing okay. Yeah, <laughs> hey, welcome. You know, this is an amazing time to talk, right? I mean, we've seen what's been going on with valuations. We've seen what's going on with liquidity for startups and founders. And the VC market is, you know, it's it's kind of weird at the moment. It's a little scary. Like, things are kind of empty in Sandhill, right? Things are actually, people are like looking for cash, you know, banks are going away. Like, what is happening in the funding environment? And what's really changed in the past six months?
3: Well, look, they're two different. They sound like one question. I think they're two different questions. Um, yes, they are. If you're on Twitter, if you're on social media, you're going to hear about interest rates and Zerp and Lerp and warp and Quirp and all this kind of stuff. None of it really matters for funding. All that matters oh. is multiples. What multiple of revenue are cloud and SaaS leaders trading at? And we are 30% below the average of the last six years, seven years. We're below oh, yes. the average. We have fallen. We're not just average. Not, we have not just Fallen back to the multiples of 2018 or 2019. We have fallen back to the multiples of 2015 and 2016. 15. And and a lot of us, you know, day to day, we didn't used to think about multiples, right? Uh, in the old days, mm. in the old days, going back with three of us, multiples were terrible. They were terrible at Salesforce. They were terrible. They were always terrible. Like it was sure. terrible. Yes. You'd be lucky to go public at a at a billion. When I when I started in SaaS, Salesforce had a market cap of two billion dollars, and that seemed like a lot, right? Um, box oh, yeah. when box IPO'd, when HubSpot IPO'd, they struggled to be worth a billion, right? And then everything got yeah. really good. And then it got really, really good multiples from 2018 to 2019. And then mm-hmm. it went batshit, whatever, bat, bat something insane in 2021. And we <laughs> haven't just snapped back to 2018 or 19 or even 17. We are at we're really That's low. Long. And and all what that simply means is it's much, much, much harder for VCs to imagine they're really going to make money. Okay. And when that doesn't happen, everything slows down. Um, it slows down the least in seed because you can still believe at a tiny valuation. And then the later stage you go, it slows down and it's just natural. It is just natural. And I was literally, I was talking with one of the best startups I've invested in and grow, grow going to triple this year. Okay. On an insane path, no macro downturn, no anything. And, a, and a top VC turned them down. And I just asked why that's cool. Right. I mean, it happens all the time. Day. It's like, well, I was looking the other day at PagerDuty, Duty. It's only worth two billion. Like it's not worth enough. I can't justify investing at this company at a tenth the price anymore. Um, oh. And so it's just percolating. All we can talk about all these things, and we can talk about LP and liquidity and all these things. But if multiples snap back to where they were, even in twenty eighteen to twenty nineteen, all will be good again. It will all no. be good again. If, but, but the weird thing is, if you look, we're actually like twenty twenty two was, was a knife drop, right? Multiples and everything fell along with the markets. It's actually been pretty steady this year. Multiples are pretty steady and that's not necessarily a good thing. It might mean we're stuck in these crummy multiples for a long time. And that's that's the meta question for VCs. And, and so to some extent, it's bleeding optimism out of the system and realism has creeped in.
4: So with realism creeping in, one of your most recent articles, you answered the question, how can a company compete With a company that has unlimited capital what do you do then how how are you coaching mentoring sponsoring founders like what's top of mind for them and how are you getting them to adjust to these these changes that we haven't seen in a
3: decade it's brutal it is brutal it is um because we were taught everyone learned horrific habits in 2021, including public companies, mind you, right? Every yes. public company overhired. Yes. It's just, it was worse <laughs> for startups. It was worse for startups. And we began to come up with metrics for startups. Like um, it was okay, as long as, you know, you're burning twice as much as you're adding in bookings when there was is free. But if you think about it for a minute, you, that's not sustainable, is it? You can't burn twice as much cash you your booking. It has to be inverted. Best case, yeah. you have to be burning a fraction of the capital you're booking. If you ever hope to be a sustainable model. So we've learned these these terrible lessons. Sales efficiency became terrible. Uh, marketing returns became terrible, and we're still unlearning them. And look, for startups, the lesson is is it's it's either brutal or it's common simple. It's like probably you have all the cash you're going to get. Yeah, and yeah. and that sounds to, to the three of us that sounds obvious. Hey, that's the way it used to be until like yeah. 2020. You raise some money, <laughs> and if you were lucky, you got more. And if you weren't, you you made your allowance last as long as, as long as it could, right? Yeah. And then. It got inverted in 2021 each round became easier it became easier which has never happened in our lifetimes even good times 2018 2017 the next round was always harder it it had to be harder right it had to be harder but it got inverted in 2021 where it got easier and so everyone in that environment everyone learned the wrong lessons everyone learned the wrong lessons and and they've just everyone's got to make do with what they have. And hopefully, again, multiples will rebound, even just 20 to 30%. If each dollar of revenue is valued 20 to 30% more, that's enough to make most VC math work, but it just is broken today. It is broken today. If some startup wants to raise, that's doing great, wants to raise a 200, 300 million valuation, but deep down you only think it's gonna be worth 500, you can't afford to invest. It doesn't matter if you love the founders, it doesn't matter. You just can't make enough money. And people think VCs make so much money. The truth is the IRRs, the numbers are not that great. You've got to beat NASDAQ, and it's very, very difficult.
0: You know, it's a really good point, right? Yeah, the, uh, the issue about what's on the back end, right? What's on the back end of the pipe, right? And almost everybody doesn't realize the back end of the pipe dictates everything else. You're working backwards all the way down to where you are, and those valuations are crushing everybody. So as a founder, then, you know, what should I be focused on at the moment if I'm a founder right now? I got my cash, right, you know? Uh, is that all? Am going to get on the allowance? What are the metrics? What are people looking for on the back end to say there's growth? Because that story you just told about where you know they're doing they're doing like you know three x. I mean that's horrible if they can't actually find someone on the back end of uh, yes. that pipe.
3: Well, look, I think we're. I mean, I hate. I'll, I'll use a trite term, and then we can dig into it. It's back yeah. to basics. Okay. okay. First of all, let's step yep. back for a minute. Even if you're a public company or private company or startup, how do you in cloud and SaaS? How do you get profit, cash flow positive? Forget about profitable. How do you do it? How do you make this work? Well, let's step back for a minute. The 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 old days beauty of software, going back to the Intuit, Adobe, Microsoft days, is a couple of smart engineers work. They each have their own office. They work really hard. Uh, they put a piece of software on a DVD or, or something, and then millions of people use it, and it's wildly profitable. And Adobe today still has almost 50% operating margins, and Microsoft's are insane, right? And so we you have to find something. What was cheap? Well, look, it was a handful of engineers, right, and very efficient yep. distribution channels. Now we've gotten to the world where everything has become inefficient, right? Engineering is extremely expensive. Sales is yep. extremely expensive, and marketing is extremely expensive. If all three are expensive, all the categories right it, yeah. in a yeah. public company or private, you'll never you'll never get efficient. So the simple answer is something's got to give if your product's very viral, it can still be you can still be wildly effective today even if sales is expensive and you have a thousand engineers right If you're hyper efficient on engineering, you know the classic Instagram or WhatsApp, you can get away with a lot of a uh, slack in other places, right? Um, Or if sales is super efficient, but something's not everything has to be efficient, but one of those three has to be hyper efficient. And so founders have to reflect about how, how can I do that is, is number one, right? And we could dig it. And the second point to remember is what people really did outside of 2021 when they had a lot of money is why do you raise $100 million? Why do you raise $200 million? Yeah. Well, in, yep. in 2021, yep. it was because I hired a thousand people, but that's the wrong reason. The real reason an efficient startup raises a ton of money is to play in categories where it's weak, to do dominant, dominant strategy. Salesforce does not need to spend any money in the categories where it already wins. You don't need to spend a dollar, they all find you, okay? It's called dominant, dominant, and and startups can either stay in their lane where where they're very, very good, or they can spend a ton of money to compete in verticals in categories where they're either weak, right? Or where they have nothing. And the truth is, if you have a brand, if you have a brand like a Salesforce or whatever, You can actually do dominant, dominant works. Salesforce can launch any product they want. And if they throw enough money at it because of their brand, some customers are going to buy it, but it's wildly expensive, right? So I think we're all going to see a retreat from this dominant, dominant strategy, except for a few, right? Because there's no money and everyone's going to have to play where you're strong, right? Where you win most deals and double down where you win. And that's very efficient as well because those leads tend to be very cheap. Sales is very good at closing the customers that are exactly like the customers they closed Mm -hmm. last week. And engineering knows how to build those features, right? So we're gonna retreat to our strengths is what's happening.
4: Let's take the line of business that I think is the hardest in any company and that's sales in my opinion. Um, What what does getting back to basics for sales mean to you as you're coaching these founders and guiding them? Um, You wrote a recent article that said, great VPs of sales never hide from a miss. Yeah, is back, is back to basic uh, translate to uh, practicing radical transparency in terms of forecasting accuracy. And how do you how are you coaching the sales function?
3: I think it all boils down to, again, we could talk about a lot of things, but like like multiples, it all boils down to one thing in sales, which we lost track of in 2021, which is that um, sales reps need to close from three to five times what they take home. Three times for SMB. Three to Four times for mid market, five times at enterprise, and they, and not just some of them. Most and ideally all. And it was tough, but Mark Benioff had a statement, you know, a while ago saying they looked at the data and so many of the new sales hires at Salesforce had closed nothing. And we could analyze why that is. It could be training, it could be market changes. It's not that they weren't good people. Of course, they were good people. But the reality is, we don't have the the room to hire folks. That can't, everyone's got to close four to five X, right? Um, three to five yeah. X. And, it's, yep. and, and the job of a VP of sales and CEOs and founders is to back solve into that. Okay. If that's what yep. it's got to be, what does that mean? Does that mean we have fewer reps? Um, does that mean we change how we do sales operations? Does that mean we don't do categories where we don't win very often? Because the reality is right. if you have a sales team and you want to go out and, and hunt new new territory, you got to pay them like one time what they bring in. It's <laughs> too hard. It's too hard to go into, to go compete with, I mean, I just got back from RSA, hey, you yeah. go compete with, uh, with Sentinel One, we have no customers, you know, you better pay those sales reps 1x of what they bring in, because it's too hard, but we, maybe we can't afford to do much of that today, we got to get back to basics, 3x to 5, and then the math is magical, it's the math, that sales should be profitable like they were in the old days, and they should not be a cost center, done right.
0: What a novel concept! (laughs)
3: Well, just infinite capital let everyone play dominant dominant strategy, even if they didn't realize it. Infinite capital mean you didn't have to worry about efficiency. Infinite capital mean literally, I wasn't at a single board meeting in 2021 where anyone asked about efficiency. Not really. Really? Now it's now it's the the pendulum's cracked through the wall on the other side. Every meeting's about efficiency. No one even asks about your growth rate. It's efficiency. No one asks.
0: this is the year of efficiency. Um, oh, my you know, gosh, The yeah. question here really yeah. is, are we going to see a death in innovation, though, as funding dries up? Is there going to be like a gap of like 24 to 36 months where we are not going to see innovation in a category because there's no money in that space? Or, And are we going to keep seeing the bigger companies get bigger at, as a result of that?
3: Well, I think it's both. I think we are seeing – it's a fun time to watch the cloud giants accelerate. Who would have thought – Who would have thought Microsoft could come back and Azure could be number two and possibly on the way to number one? Who could have thought Microsoft and Google could be so successful? Who would have thought we could see the renaissance in Salesforce and so many other leaders? Or Oracle, Oracle, Oracle's got its third win. Where'd that come from? Who would, I never would have thought. And so a lot of these, and, and a lot of the money, and you guys know this even better than I do, a lot of the spending hasn't dried up in the enterprise it's just become much more uh discriminatory and thoughtful right it's much harder but and, and the money is going to the brands and the big and the big and yes it's a bummer that cloudflare went from whatever 50 percent growth to 35 percent growth that's still pretty good right i mean azure still grew 30 something percent right but you'll meet with startups and you know how and you know what they booked nothing last quarter nothing nothing I know.
0: we bet right. some folks nothing
3: Not do you see a cloudflare or 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 a Page or do you pick or is there you don't see them growing zero you don't see anybody growing zero do you but you see startup after startup after startup growing zero um but i don't think it's going to kill innovation it's just going to it's just going to be the death of these hyper inefficient startups and the and and the death of um undifferentiated startups of the fifth player. We don't, we're probably not gonna need the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh player in the space anymore, but it's okay, right? Software, outside of open AI, you know, Five or six engineers should be able to get a 1.0 of anything out. And there is an infinite sort. there are more sources of seed capital today than there ever have been in our lifetimes. Yep. There are more entrepreneurs who had big exits. There are more of this. There, there is some even though capital dries up after seed stage, there are so many people that have money to invest in the next generation. It's it's almost actually inexhaustible the amount of capital there is if you're an efficient seed startup, right? It, it's not that it's fair, it's not that it doesn't discriminate, it's not that it doesn't pattern match. Okay. It does. It's biased for Stanford grads and MIT grads and folks that graduated from from, from Datadog and GitLab. But, but beyond the discriminatory, there's infinite pre-seed and seed capital. It's just, it's just infinite for, for for breakout leaders. So, so th- there won't be a dearth of innovation. It's just going to be much harder to scale than it was. Hey, we would be
0: remiss not to talk about Saster, your big event coming up. What's yes. happening then? What date is it? And what do you expect? I mean, it's quite a production. You gave me the numbers the other <laughs> yeah. day, like how big it was, like when we're sitting at, at, at the Rosewood. And I was like, holy yes. crap. I, I didn't realize how big it had gotten. So,
3: yeah, we have we have four thousand coming to our more informal event in London, June sixth to seventh. So that's Saster wow. London Europa, and they'll have about twelve thousand or so come to. Goodness gracious, I think it's the ninth Saster annual, September sixth to eighth in San Mateo. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty fun. It's pretty unique, um, and it's it's just you know there's everyone's there. There's plenty of CXOs and there's hundreds and hundreds of VCs, but really. The core ICB is CEOs, founders from like two to a hundred million in revenue, just sharing their learnings. And um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing that all these years that the best of the best will come and just share their learnings again and again. It's kind of, I mean, you guys know this, but it's, it's kind of magical that the best do this, isn't it? It
4: really it is. is. It really, it hey, really let
0: is. us know how we can help again. If we're the same things you wanted to do, we're still in, let me know. Count me in, in on in. that. We're in. All right. Very cool. I'll follow up. We're here with Jason Lemkin, SAS founder, Saster founder, enthusiast, and VC. You can follow him on Twitter at Jason LK. And of course, check out the events in June and September. Thanks a lot.
4: Thank Thanks you, for Jason. Time, guys. Cheers. Uh, lots of uh, nuggets <laughs> of wisdom in that 20-minute session. <laughs> if you were a
0: startup <laughs> listening or an enterprise tech person, you'd yeah. be like, holy crap. <laughs>
4: it's, yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's a privilege for us to have uh, Dheeraj Pandey, CEO and co-founder of DevRev. Dheeraj is a veteran entrepreneur, having had several CEO and EVP roles during his 20-plus-year-long career in the software technology industry. Currently, Diraj is the CEO and co-founder of DevRev, a fully remote tech company with a platform that converges the silos of sales, marketing, support, and engineering to act as one. Every company needs to act as one in order to compete and win. Before launching DevRev, Diraj was founder, CEO, and chairman of Nutanix, a software company focused on hybrid cloud infrastructure, which was uh, the most valuable IPO in 2016. Diraj currently serves as a board member at Adobe and sits on the board of advisors at his alma mater, University of Texas, Austin. You can follow d on Twitter. He must have been an early adopter. I couldn't get Vala. <laughs> At d ranch <There> <laughs> D-H-E-E-R-A-J. Welcome, d ranch to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you.
0: Hey, we're really excited to have you here and you know one of the hot topics here has really been where generative AI, open AI, diffusion models are headed. Um, they're getting a lot of interest in adoption, especially around decision making, right? And one of the things that I've been talking about for years is around the concept of decision velocity. Let's talk a little bit more about this, right There's an Oracle study that's been talking about some of these concepts. You've been talking about these areas that are important. Uh, what's happening in the space? I mean everyone's trying to make sense of it and it is moving super fast.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I will say that uh, just like most things, there'll be a hype cycle in AI as well. Uh, there'll be tons and tons of startups that will be funded here, and many feature companies. You know, not like real platform companies or product companies, but a lot of feature companies building on top of uh, an existing system. Record. You know, trying to do this. You know, uh, there'll be 30 thirty million dollar revenues for these companies. But I feel like if you go back in time to the 1990s, you know. Uh, Oracle couldn't get the internet right. I mean, they were doing, uh, SAP and Oracle couldn't get the internet right. They were doing on-prem business software. You know, here comes Salesforce and says, this is how you really use the internet, you know. And then you look at 2010s and beyond and people said cloud, cloud native, you know, that's the SaaS 2.0 that happened. I feel like AI right now is like the internet and it cannot be retrofitted into an existing code base. Uh, And this is where the real a magic will begin where we can re- take an empty canvas approach to things and say, look, if you have to really build a system of record that's engaging, just like Slack was engaging uh, and it's intelligent because it is sentient, and prescient, it actually knows a lot about your enterprise. I think uh, some great things can happen in the coming years. We were just talking about sales efficiency and all that stuff. And whether there's going to be a death of innovation with uh, Jason. I feel like innovation will make things more efficient. So, you know, when we're looking at sales right now, we're like, we, every sales rep used to ask for a human co-pilot. like I need an SC, I need a CSM, I need a GSI uh, manager, I need, I need, I need everything was I need, I need an SDR, I need an ISR. (laughs) I mean, look at Nutanix, uh, I was spending a billion dollars annually in sales and marketing alone, just sales and marketing alone, to get to a billion six billion seven. Uh, I think we could have done it for 700 million if we really had a way to think through what innovation really meant and how, what I think could uh, happen with co-pilots in the future. I mean, we are thinking about putting all our knowledge base, all our product managers, sort of uh, mindshare, everything that SEs know in one place. And then even though We're going after, you know, selling chatbots and selling a support CRM and selling a product CRM. We feel like if we are not using our own chatbot to, you know, go beyond Slack because Slack was a place where you needed people to come and answer questions. Mm. But this has to be where deflection is happening without other people coming and crowdsourcing answers to questions itself, you know. I think that's where a lot uh, will happen with AI as well. We'll have a co-pilot for a product manager, a co-pilot for a CSM, a co-pilot for an SE, a co-pilot for a rep, and that innovation will make things more efficient.
4: That makes a lot of sense. Um, Enhancing the contextual intelligence around the stakeholders you serve and the folks you collaborate with. And when I I hear your tagline of act as one, and then I listen to you talk about the concept of co-pilots does it feel like uh, that the enterprise will become more autonomous, and there's a shift from orchestrating sales, service, marketing, commerce with all these uh, titles you mentioned, more towards choreography, where there isn't a person in charge? Like, you know, you see a ballet a dancer on a stage, the music lets them know where they need to be, and the next step. There isn't a person in charge; things are choreographed. Are, are we going to see process innovation and more choreography because the systems will guide us without, uh, you know, a supervisor for service and supervisor for marketing and sales and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm taking your thoughts and that the, makes sense.
2: Yeah. Very valid point. I mean, um, I want to take a step back and, uh, quote one of my favorite sort of, uh, designers from 40, 50 years ago, Raymond Louis, he built a lot of brands like Coca-Cola and and, uh, the Greyhound and all these legendary brands that we know of today. And he was a big fan of this acronym, Maya, M-A-Y-A, most advanced, yet acceptable. Uh, (laughs) if If you think about Google glasses, or even Oculus, I think they were most advanced, but like Google Glasses was socially awkward. Like sure. I, I couldn't really just wear this, go to a party. People like walk at it, you know.
4: <laughs> AI <laughs> needs to... It actually hurt my eye looking up too, too long.
0: Yeah, it you're just like... It wasn't I mean,
4: acceptable because yeah. I'm like, I can't keep my eye looking to the corner more than a few yeah. minutes. Anyway, sorry.
2: And <laughs> by the way, uh, that's the biological non-acceptability of the Oculus and these yeah. glasses. And similarly, I think AI needs to go through the rigors of Maya, you know, like at the end of the day, it has to be most advanced yet acceptable. And I mean, like, I mean, if you go through what machine assists need to be, if you go and say, look, they're going to take away jobs, I think people will really say, you know what, this is an inaccurate bot, it's too arrogant, we have to fail it. But if it goes in there, a lot of these things go in as humble, because some research was done like two years ago, the Wall Street Journal did a research in chatbots. And they said people will fail the smartest bot in the room You know, who's trying to act like the smartest uh, person in the room because that's what most people do. Like, if you're trying to be the smartest person in the room, then the rest of society actually comes together and says, you know what, maybe you're not worth it. I think that's true for chatbots too. And that's going to be true for AI as well. Because if you think of the power of LLMs and all this data, they're still inaccurate. So we'll have to go in there and act very, very humble. The bots have to be asking for human feedback, getting reinforcement learning going, uh, you know, continuing to actually uh, really get better every day as well. But I think, I mean, if you look at five to seven to ten years out, just like with the Internet, uh, I mean, it took ten years from 1997 to really get 3G going and the mobile uh, Mm -hmm. phone going, I think we are in this five to seven uh, year kind of uh, horizon here where ai will convert jobs it will collapse some departments i mean because we did create i mean jason talked about the excesses of the last four or five years i feel like a lot of SaaS companies went in and oversold and then they worried about customer success later on there's lots of departments we created in the last five years like growth engineering and customer success management all those things will actually need to come to some core departments like product management They need to do customer success. They need to do growth. It cannot be like these are all separate departments doing things separately. I think the front office, if anything, has to get more product centric. And the back office has to get more customer centric. And AI can really help developers actually get more customer centric. Because if Copilot is going to come and write 30, 40, 50% of their code, they'll have more time. I mean, GitHub Copilot will actually do more. I mean, you know, we talk about this at board meetings, like, what is the future of work for developers? What's the future of yeah. work for product managers? You know, right. And I feel like this orchestration that you speak of, Vala, will need to be machine-assessed to existing uh, yes. you know, jobs. Now, we might end up going to you know, colleges like a lot more than we have because the younger people yeah. are actually a lot more productive than they used to be. AI can help them with a lot yeah. of this training as well.
4: Yeah. As the cost of content is converging to zero uh, and the volume is increasing, I don't know how it can't be machine assist because, you know, how do you test the efficacy and the accuracy to ensure whatever content that's generated you're going to share doesn't drift away from your brand promise and your core values? Oh. And there's, it's not ready for an enterprise i, I just it's, maybe it's my <laughs> humble opinion but uh, you know uh, so so the humans have to be part of the process but the volume is at a, such a pace that it has to the, the the automation and the testing of the new content has to include um has to include bots and machines um and i have to yeah. with go ahead
2: yeah i was going to say that look uh, this is going to be verticalized it's going to be extremely focused you know anybody trying to really do ai washing for the entire enterprise probably is going to fail but like at devrev we are taking a very very specific look at chatbots support crm product yep. and development yep. like what does it mean for yeah. this one pathway to be extremely efficient yeah and if one could do that well maybe you've actually enabled developers and product managers and support engineers Right. Uh, to really become uh, AI ready, in some I sense.
4: like the back to basics. You're naming functions that are core to successful companies, <laughs> you know. And I don't, I'm not against having different titles. I mean, look at the chief digital evangelist, but product management, product marketing. You know, <laughs> these folks all like success is not something you delegate to you know, it's a team sport. Anyway, sorry, uh, go would, ahead. <laughs> I was,
0: exp- I was, I was explaining to my son, there, there are these real jobs. They're called product. <laughs> They're called sales. <laughs> They're called marketing, yeah, right? Maybe. Yeah. And if you're not on the product side, if you're not building product or you're not selling product, everything is overhead. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to explain. I'm yeah. like, that's how it used to be. So, but we're, but we're finally back to that, but Hey, you know, related to that. I mean, there's a good point here, right? I mean, we're operating at machine scale yet we're humans and we've got to figure out how that balance is going to occur. Right. And the exponential amount of misinformation and disinformation being created by a chat GPT or generative AI is concerning. So what are we doing to improve that precision, that training to get to that, you know, last percent? And, and what I mean is like, you know, getting 99.1% accurate in healthcare is probably not good enough, right? People are going to want a lot more than that. 87% accurate on self-help and chats, right? And CRM, yeah, I'll take that. You know, that's better than what we're doing now with our contacts and our agents, right? And so finding that amount of data, like how do we know if we have enough data? How do we know if doing the training the right way what are you doing to improve that
4: yeah
2: i mean uh for first of all i mean if you take a look at where ai will be especially stuff that's not 100 exact you know there's this degree of exactitude uh in departments too in, in any company if in a certain department the cost of error is low yep. uh, and the cost of recall is low i mean if you go back to yep. the 80s uh, hardware versus software, the cost of recall of hardware was really high. Sure. So you had yes. to be really, really good at your VHDL, your tape outs. I mean, it was just a lot of hard work and it used to take 18 months to roll out a new chip or an ASIC. Yep. I think software was very different because the cost of recall was yep. low as well. I think we'll see that with departments. There will be departments where if you go wrong and you have to restate revenue, then you might go to jail for that too. But there are other places where you don't have to be 100% right, which is where AI will be used more because the cost of error is low. The cost of recall is actually going to be low. And of course, I mean, look, uh, going back to the 2007, 8, 9, 10 timeframe, I mean, social media, there was a lot of stuff that was fake and was probably copyright violated and so on. And, and you know, we came up with things like, okay, fine. You know, it's going to be a safe harbor, and if somebody comes and complains about uh, my content being on youtube youtube will actually take it down we'll see a lot of that stuff come around here as well where people will actually be willing to live with the errors provided ai acts humbly to the human it says look ah, uh, humbleness, is is...
0: Key.
3: Yeah. humbleness is and, and key yeah and second
2: thing is uh, in a lot of creative jobs uh, where people have a writer's block because an empty canvas and a writer's block you know, results in procrastination, you know, like a lot of people procrastinate, because, they're like, I don't know where to begin. The machine can be your chief of staff, can be your assistant to really do that stuff early on. And I think those are the places we'll see a lot more usage. While for other things, we'll still have structured data. You'll still have analytics. You'll still have yep. exactitude, yep. Data, data warehouses and lake houses and all the things that we've talked about in the last 10 years.
4: You've mentioned the word humility a couple of times uh, on this uh, conversation. I love that. Uh, because you're incredibly successful uh, executive, founder. Um, how do you how do you how do you mentor? How do you how, as a sponsor? How do you ensure, especially when you've had your success, company's grown, it's acquired, it's the most successful IPO of 2016. How do you stay humble? Uh, The founder of my company keeps reminding us to maintain a beginner's mindset. Trust is our number one core value. I have a very specific definition of trust, but I don't think I have a a great definition of humility. Can you share with us, give some advice to other founders who are watching, who aspire to reach your level of success? How do you stay grounded?
2: Well, uh, I still have a long ways to go in terms of what uh, knowledge (laughs) and success and making an impact, making a dent in the universe actually means. I love that. Uh, But thank you for the kindness. Uh, You know, uh, I have a a really good mentor in Mike Robbins. uh, And uh, he's the author of, uh, you know, a book called uh, Be Yourself Because Everyone Else is Taken. And, uh, (laughs) you know, he talks about the word uh, vulnerability a lot, just like Brené Brown does. But the one word that I've come to learn in the last 10 years is authenticity. You know, Uh And, uh, you know, he he said, it's actually a continuum, it's a spectrum, you know, on the left of the spectrum is just uh, dishonest people. Um, Hmm. The middle of the spectrum is honest people. And that gives you a pause, like, are you saying honesty is not good enough. And then he says, you know, you got to take something out of honesty and add something to honesty to make it authentic, which is the right of the spectrum. What you take out is self-righteousness, which is just because I'm right means ah. you're wrong, you know, that's all zero-sum yeah, mindset. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: And then what you add to it is vulnerability, like, I don't know enough, and I might be wrong, and all that. I think, you know, that spectrum, you know, really reminds me a lot about what I need to do differently every day. Because You know, as a hard-charging founder, you come in every day and all you need is results and outcomes and so on. But Mm. then you end up thinking about inputs and people and process and, you know, what do you need to be patient about? What do you need to be impatient about? Because, you know, there's always this balance between opposites when you're doing companies. But again, if you are the true north of everything is how do you take out self-righteousness? How do you bring in vulnerability? And then you're going from just being honest to being authentic, you know, and that's being. Ash, this months. is a TED
4: talk. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> I was not expecting such an in-depth answer. <laughs> wow! Uh,
2: yeah, wow! I think, that's you know, awesome. and th- these reminders actually helped me. Like, I step out of this room. Hopefully, I, I remember to be less self-righteous and more vulnerable. Yeah.
4: That was wow. So, yeah that, that I'm, a, I'm going to be rewatching this show on the weekend. Uh, and this, this point going to stay with me. Sorry, Ray. I just, I wasn't expecting such a deep answer. That was no, no, it's, an impromptu uh... question. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sorry.
0: No, uh, no problem.
4: I, I love that. I'm bringing, no, hey, mean, the we, folks you mentioned are amazing. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs>
0: But we are seeing definitely a shift that's going on, right? I mean, the market's different, the, the, the environment's different, the customer set's different. What about the teams that you're putting together? What's changing in leadership, right? I mean, we got a moment to talk to you about leadership, and you've been an amazing leader in so many different companies mm-hmm. and also you know, in, in you know, charities and other organizations around the Bay Area. What's what's changing in leadership? What are you seeing there, right? And what, what are people looking more for?
2: Um, I think, you know, this question of authentic leadership, you know, is very important. Um, yeah. You know, when when I when I look at Nutanix, you know, we had 6,000, 7,000 people in the company. Uh, yeah. And at every step of the way, I used to think about uh, how our leaders, we used to have these three H's and I've carried that over to Deverev now, hungry, humble and honest, you know, what does it mean to be hungry, humble and honest? Uh, yeah. Easy to remember. And the fourth one that I've added is happy because you know starting from (laughs) teenage (laughs) years
4: no it makes sense
2: i mean it's simple you know even in japan one can remember what hungry humble and honest actually mean you know uh simple values you know (laughs) uh but i think leadership also needs to do the three things to become uh you know happy as well it's sleep well breathe well and uh, smile more you know i think if leadership is not sleeping well because you know we have six offices we have India we have Slovenia we have Argentina we have here Austin there's a lot that's going on and people are doing early morning meetings and late night meetings I think leadership needs to really bring through this uh, idea that you know the only way we can actually get uh, folks to bring their whole self to the company it's got to be with the sleep well and I tell people yeah. you know if you're doing late night meetings don't do the early morning ones you know because that's the only way to really build a remote company you know, otherwise we can't have
4: it all you know?
0: Right, yep, yep. I love that. No, we're definitely yeah. seeing that. I, uh,
4: that's uh, uh, the authenticity in your answers. Uh, I can tell that what you think, and what you say, and what you do are aligned. Uh, and I just met you. But, but but I definitely feel the authenticity in your response. I, so I appreciate I you sharing your wisdom with us. Really Thank you so much. Thank
0: you so much. We're here with Dharaj Panda, CEO and co-founder of DevRev, and of course, legendary startup entrepreneur, and of course, uh, leader here in the Silicon Valley. You can follow him on Twitter at Dharaj, D-H-E-E-R-A-J, early adopter of Twitter, definitely. So <laughs> thanks a lot for being on the Thank show you. and uh, happy Friday.
4: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, that was awesome. We're getting <laughs> was- blown away <laughs> yeah. everywhere today. I mean, it's uh, amazing.
4: Our, our long distance award goes to our final guest who we're interrupting his, at dinner time. Uh, Paulo Savat- uh, author of Four Workarounds. Uh, Paul is the author of the Four Workarounds, associate professor at Oxford University's engineering science department and the SET Business School. Paulo holds a PhD from University of Cambridge, as a gates scholar and has a background working as a lecturer consultant entrepreneur researcher finding innovative solutions for more inclusive world i love that more inclusive as an immigrant refugee i love that as a consultant he works on projects for large companies non-profits government agencies uh in latin america and the oecd he currently resides in oxford so again thank you for joining us late paul's new book the four Workarounds: strategies from the world's scrappiest Love that organizations for tackling complex problems you can follow paulo on twitter at p-a-u-l-o-s-a-v-a-g-e-t welcome paulo to disrupt tv
1: thank you very much for hosting me very excited
0: to talk to you
4: thank you sir thank you Same
0: here. hey well happy friday welcome let's start with the basic question what is a workaround Uh, A workaround
1: is uh, an imperfection-loving, problem-solving approach that I've learned, actually, from computer hackers. Uh, I, I got very curious about how computer hackers were hacking all sorts of complex systems, these computational systems, and I started wondering whether we could approach complex problems in all the systems, let's say, in education systems, healthcare, and so on, with a very hacky approach. And as I engage with computer hackers studying them, I realized that the essence of their approach is that they work around all sorts of obstacles that lie in their way so for example a trojan horse that is one of the most notorious <laughs> computer hacks uh yeah. represents a bit that idea right you don't have to break into the walls or, or the gates of a walled city to get in you may find more unconventional ingenious ways uh, and and that was the, the the beginning of the the research uh, but a workaround challenges the conventions on how a problem is meant to be solved and also by whom a problem is meant to be solved.
4: And your book, you know, you reference four types of workarounds. Now, was it spending time with computer hackers with that was the catalyst for the idea? How did you how did you come up with the idea? And then please explain to us the four different types
1: Sure. Thank you. Yes, uh, it was actually from Computer Hackers. I had worked for many years as a consultant, as an entrepreneur, and as a consultant, I worked in many different places with, for example, traditional populations in the Amazon, but also with very large companies. And I realized that my reports were getting very similar. So in some ways, I was frustrated with myself, uh, considering that I was giving recommendations in very different settings and these recommendations relied on more alignment, more coordination, more collaboration, and things that are not wrong, right? I would never (laughs) say that these things are wrong, but they were very generic, and I was overlooking other ways of making change. Uh, Then I decided to look at hackers and study hackers to see how they approached problems in computer systems, and that's how I ended up finding that hacking is not only exclusive to computer systems, but it can be used in all sorts of systems, uh, and also that workaround is at the essence. So let me give you an example to materialize that a little bit, uh, what uh, a workaround uh, entails or can possibly entail. And it's the first workaround that I call the piggyback. Uh, one of the examples that I use in the book is from an organization that i worked with in Zambia, uh, and they wanted to address the lack of access to diarrhea treatment in very remote regions. Uh, remote regions select some basic products, but they, can, you can actually find other sorts of products like fast, uh, from fast-moving consumer goods, for example, like Coca-Cola. So instead of addressing the bottlenecks preventing medicines from being found in these remote regions, this very small scrappy organization uh, worked around these obstacles by piggybacking on Coca-Cola distribution chain, literally oh. fitting medicines between bottles in a crate to take a free that's ride nice. to this remote region because if right. Coca-Cola is found there, why can't we take free rides for medicines that will Excellent. save lives? Love it.
4: <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. That's pretty much so <laughs> then you call this piggyback.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's the idea that you don't have to address a problem in healthcare yeah. only by addressing through the means of healthcare the traditional conventional ways of approaching problems in that system. You can benefit from what already exists in fast-moving consumer goods. You can find foundational pairings to get a lot of things done. There's already so much potential, so much stuff out there. Why can't we breach across these silos?
4: Sure, you talk no, about scrappiness. A- I'm sorry, Ray. you talk about this. You define this as scrappy organizations. Can you teach scrappiness? How do you? How, how does your? <laughs> how does the DNA of a culture of a company? Look, when I think of scrappiness, I think about uh, grit. I think about resourcefulness. I think about optimism, pragmatic optimism maybe no. just optimism uh like wh- wh- what what what's your definition of scrappy
1: it's exactly what you said i'm i'm <laughs> amazed that we have exactly the same view of scrappy and that's how i defined scrappy organizations i would just add that these scrappy organizations so sometimes or most times in the fringes right of of power structures mm. they're not necessarily the ibm's or the googles of the world uh, but perhaps these Google and IBM were once scrappy organizations that were being very resourceful, sometimes out of necessity. Yeah. We had some brilliant uh, discussions uh, earlier today, right? With uh, your other guest speakers that discussed a little bit these early stages of startups. And many of them have to be scrappy uh, to succeed. And I have cases, for example, of Airbnb or TransferWise, now called WISE, and how they worked around obstacles to uh, grow, for example, exponentially.
0: Amazing. You know, ahead, that Ray. makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about the loophole workaround, right? This is a very interesting one. And really how, really talk about how these can benefit underdogs rather than the people that are entrenched or in power or you know have all the advantages because this is a fun workaround. And uh, let's go deep on that.
1: Yeah. And, and it's also the most controversial one from all the four. A very controversial, around. yes. Yeah, <laughs> Because it's about working around rules so if the first one is about relationships the second one is about rules Uh, and uh, let me give an example to uh, illustrate that a little bit there's an organization that i studied that is based in the netherlands uh, and it's an organization of feminist women that is pro-choice they think that women should be allowed to get an abortion service if they want on demand right that's uh, how they started and they realized that what constrains women from getting a safe abortion service is, uh and, and legal abortion service is where they reside so for example if they are in poland they cannot get an abortion service but if they are here in the uk they can in the united states now it depends on the states right uh so the uh the, it's pretty much the legislation that constrains women from getting these safe and legal abortions so what did they do to work around that they got a boat from the netherlands where a country that is pro-choice and they sail to places where abortion is illegal let's say they go to poland and then women who want to get an abortion service go on board and they sail to international waters which is not that far from the coastline it's like less than half an hour most times and then they can provide a safe and legal abortion service because the legislation that applies in international waters is the one of the flag of the boat and because it's dutch it's the legislation from the netherlands that it's pro-choice so they can provide the service and take them back to the countries where they reside. When you're
4: teaching students about these concepts, um, what type of mi- mindset do you do you do you try to instill in them? Uh, it, it, what type of mindset is required to recognize that there's potential opportunity for a uh, workaround and? and experiment with the workaround. And again, uh, I had mentioned a beginner's mindset. You know, if you, I assume if you're free of prejudice, if you're curious, if anyone who's a parent of a young child, you know, um, I think that children are probably have the right mindset to look for workarounds. Um, so how, what's the type <laughs> of mindset that you, when you, you need to cultivate in order to be successful with workarounds?
1: Workarounds, uh, uh, I learned from scrappy organizations, and there's a reason why the <laughs> organizations excel in, in uh, working around those sorts of obstacles. Uh, and, and you mentioned, for example, children being prone to workarounds, and some people that are very creative in assembling resources in different ways, recombining them, finding different pairings, rethinking or challenging, deviating from rules uh, that might be enforced on them. So there are some people that are very prone or that uh, from whom I found many cases of workarounds. But what I learned throughout my research is that everyone actually works around the obstacles to different extents. And that these are muscles that we can train, we can exercise, we can get better at working around. And that's one of the things that I show in my book. So, for example, one of the mindsets that I think is very important is to realize that in complex situations... A complicated solution is really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, simple is good in complicated uh, situations. And workarounds are simple. They are very graceful and effective and, and, and uh, ways of approaching problems. It's kind of like the low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. of problem solving. Yeah. But there's no problem in a low-hanging fruit if it's tasty fruit and <laughs> it's rich. Right. And right, it's right. <laughs> you, right? That's the, the essence. And, and it can allow for very big and structural change later on. Companies that have become huge, for example, after working around um, many obstacles that they faced or people who changed entire legislations. Like in the United States, I show a case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg working around uh, some challenges that she had when she was a lawyer uh, before she became a Supreme Court Justice. uh, And that toppled down a system of sex-based discrimination. Mm -hmm. Workarounds are accessible, right? They are ways simple ways of getting things done that open up many future possibilities for change making.
0: This is amazing. And one of the other concepts you talk about is the power of the outside, right? How does that work? And how taking that perspective could actually give you potentially another workaround. Uh, Let's start there.
1: Exactly. When we uh, work as insiders, we get numb to the ways of getting things done, and this won't be a surprise to all of you, right? There's a certain way of getting things done in our daily lives as well, not only in our workplaces. I have my way of cooking pasta, right? I never challenge my way of cooking pasta. <laughs> I will criticize people that do. <laughs> <laughs> no, we
4: will never debate an Oxford professor on pasta cooking. We would lose. Exactly. So Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. The good thing about outsiders is that they they come with fresh eyes. They can challenge these norms. They are not numb to the way of getting things done. And that allows them to find different pairings, for example, or rethink the way we use resources in ways that are unconventional in that setting. That's why outsiders can be very good at finding workarounds. And we can also stimulate this outsider mindset. And it's something that I try to bring in the book as well. Like well, them. should,
0: should companies know, be encouraging their teams to actually focus on workarounds at scale? Like, is that something that you would say is you know, going to be an, a leadership mandate where people actually go out and say, you know, we're looking for innovation. Let's actually focus on workarounds. Do you see that happening?
1: I do see that happening. Actually, there's some companies that have already institutionalized one of the workarounds that became very prominent. Uh, uh, for example, HP, Cream, Google, they all have these policies now that allow for people to uh, de- uh, to dedicate 15 or 20% of their times for their personal innovative projects, right? Yeah. These, many of these policies came from people that were working around the direct orders from their bosses to work on the projects <laughs> that they lived in, but their bosses didn't believe in. That includes, for example, Aspirin was developed that way. Blue LED lights were also developed that way. Uh, Large uh, screen displays also. Uh, Many technologies that we love and use came from people that were working around direct orders from their (laughs) bosses. And and that's something that companies have built on. They realize the importance of allowing people to build on their passion and their drive to create innovation.
4: I love that. I mean, you know, you implied and I agree with you that as companies become bigger, they're not as scrappy. Uh, And I don't know, it's been said, people are not afraid of failure. They're afraid of blame. And I wonder when companies get bigger and the decisions become greater magnitude in terms of right or wrong or different shades of good, better, best, that people don't have the safe space to experiment with workarounds, because they are in a culture of blame and finger pointing when something goes wrong. Imagine companies you mentioned, you know, public companies that are living 90 day by 90 day with earnings calls and this, that, and the other. You, so my question is, how important is this safe space and a culture where you don't blame experimentation? In fact, you view experimentation as part of the learning process. How much of that is required in order for large companies not to lose their scrappiness?
1: Yeah. Uh, I would actually take that a step further and say that workarounds are actually good to disrupt these cultures, these cultures that oh, uh, yeah. do not allow for people or, or, or hinder uh, the, the innovation drive of the staff. So, for example, some of the cases that I covered in the book, uh, I, I show how by working around orders from the bosses, they created a safe space where they could develop the innovation to the point that it was ripe to be presented publicly. In the beginning of an innovation project, what happens very often, and and, and I'm sure you all, innovators and entrepreneurs know that, the idea is very rough. It's difficult to convince others that it will be successful because it might make sense to you, but it might not necessarily be very well aligned with the corporate strategies or it might be difficult to convince other people that have the decision power. So if you work around... You can buy time to dedicate to your project and develop it to the point that it becomes more attractive to others as well. <laughs> and then you go public. You can convince them how the project can, should be invested in, and, and and invite other people to work on that project also. So uh, this is just one of the examples. But workarounds can be very disruptive of these sorts of cultures. These cultures that are that normalize. Um, a situation where people feel very constrained, that they feel like nothing's possible, it's not worth uh investing in something new, just the the yeah work from nine to five and, and, and off right, you go, right. right? That's uh these are cultures that are kind of good to work around because we can disrupt that and try to change. For sure. It's Apollo. just like delicious
4: pasta. You gotta let it simmer a little bit. You gotta be patient. And you gotta, you know, the, all ideas are super fragile at birth. No question. No question. Even the great yeah. ones. <laughs> I, yeah, I, in, in innovation,
1: when I teach my classes here in innovation, we describe uh, them as mon- uh, hopeful monstrosities. They are hopeful, but they're monstrous, right? Like, <laughs> but you gotta reach that moment that the hope trumps <laughs> the monstrous so nature of these early stage okay. ideas.
0: So Paula, this is actually a very important concept around workarounds. And the reason I'm very excited about this is in a world of AI where the rules are very rigid, very black and white, right? We're gonna need a ton more workarounds, right? I mean, that whole notion of actually augmenting the machine with a human and working side by side, right? I mean, the machine is gonna be learning about all these workarounds because human behavior isn't linearly mapped, right? We don't follow those patterns. And it's very interesting when we try to organize around very rigid processes. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll actually get to the workarounds that actually you know maybe define humanity as opposed to define where we are at an AI level, uh, how, what do you think about that?
1: That's a great thought. I would say that if that if a workaround becomes the status quo it's no longer a workaround uh, a exactly. workaround to challenge that status quo uh, and if we eventually see ai's for example suggesting uh, workarounds we're going to mm-hmm. have to come up to with workarounds for that for these workarounds <laughs> to institutionalized to the escalation
0: world. workaround war
1: <laughs> wow
4: so, so so your belief is that if the end state is robot generated or algorithmic generated workarounds um Knowing that all the data that's ingested into the, let's say, large language model, it's not going to produce creative, like completely new way of thinking. It's most likely massaging other thoughts and principles. um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, that that you it, then that would require time for a
1: workaround. That that's that's,
4: that's
0: introducing the <laughs> introducing oh, the yeah. anticipatory workaround. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Oh. What I would say is that it opens possibilities So let me give a different example, yeah. an analogous experience sure. that is not AI, but it's more reality sure. for us now. But it was very dystopian, perhaps fifteen years ago. Now a lot of people have cryptocurrency, right? Bitcoin was a workaround to the financial yes, system yes. that yes. is centralized by the central bank and around yes. the world, right? Yes. That, that's a, a workaround that followed a bunch of workarounds, people working around the FBI, the NSA, and so on to develop cyber technologies. Yes. If crypto eventually became the new norm, it will have originated from a workaround, but it's no longer a workaround to a financial system <laughs> if it becomes a new norm of the financial system, Right. And but I'm sure that a lot of people will come up with workarounds for that. <laughs> if that becomes it's going to be a workaround to crypto, right? Uh, workarounds challenge conventions on how things should be done or the, the conventions of systems and also who should be the ones addressing problems or sh- who should be the ones doing things in a certain great, way. Great, uh, great, it's, it's great yeah, it has to be
4: defiant. <laughs> and now when it's I think amazing. of all the bad actors over the last two years, their workaround of a decentralized framework was to trust, centralize it more. And, uh, and then they didn't, you know, uh, have trust as their core value. And it reiterated the importance of we need to maintain that decentralization and, and ensure that one actor can't tumble a market. Sorry, I don't mean to get into the crypto, but that's a great analogy. I totally, I, we have witnesses, Ray and I are crypto people, Lots of workarounds that didn't work around, around and more workarounds and it's uh, mm-hmm. uh the cold wallet we still is
1: still it. it's like stacking workarounds, right? That sometimes allow for the development of entirely new systems or business true. models. Really
0: true. No, we're yeah. saying that. We're with Paulo Savage author of the four workarounds. You can follow him on Twitter at Paulo Savage. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. And of course, this innovative rule of workarounds. Congrats (laughs) on the book. Thank you, sir. Congratulations. You can get the book on Amazon available March 3rd. So very cool. Uh, (sighs) (laughs) And you're not asking me (laughs) to summarize this, are you?
4: (laughs) No, but I'm just saying every one of our guests, uh, Jason, Viraj, uh, Paulo, like, Not take notes fast enough with any of our guests in all the incredible. Uh, inc- if yep. you could maybe in 30 seconds summarize, that would be great because I know our audience uh, benefits <laughs> from your wisdom.
0: Oh, great. Thanks. No, um, (laughs) hey, look, I mean, the the funding environment is very interesting, and we're getting back to basics. And Jason's definitely right about that. Uh, We've been lost in an era of cheap capital, cheap money. Uh, People actually believed in MMT. Uh, That actually created really perverse behaviors, right? Things that didn't work uh, in terms of what we see as natural laws of physics. Uh, But that environment may actually create much better startups, much more innovative startups and much more disciplined startups. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where that's headed, right? But one of the biggest things. Productivity as
4: the North Star with productivity, yeah. As productivity as
0: North Star, is North stars, massive efficiency, right? And, and hopefully, you know, societal productivity. Uh, right. The thing that's interesting to me the most is that AI will change the way these startups work uh, and really change the way how you know we see those efficiencies. And and really, that takes us to the next part, really about you know what's happening next. I mean, I mean, Duraj really shared with us in terms of thinking about where, where that future is going to look like, right? What are we going to see in terms of how we actually maybe apply generative AI to a business problem? What we actually have to do, think about entrepreneurship, right? What does that new leadership look like? We're looking at a new set of leaders uh, with with that level of experience. Uh, And and I think, you know, if these systems fail us, what Paulos is saying is basically these workarounds will be here. And you know what? We're going to get even more innovative. And so so I see this episode as the episode really talking about where – a culture of abundance is shifting to a culture of scarcity, forcing us to become a little bit more innovative, a little bit more uh, scrappy, and a little bit more authentic. So I'll leave that with you.
4: Great summary. Great summary. Next week, uh, we will have Paul Sheard, author of Power of Money. He was the former Ooh. vice chairman of S&P Global. If you love economics and money, this is your guy. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Sue Watts, president of uh, Sapiens Analytics. And Phil Simon, author of *The Nine: The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace*. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We're approaching a thousand guests in the next two weeks. So we'll be the thousand being... guest. Yeah, I think it's going to be Paul Doherty. Uh, but but you know, I'm, I, I need to double check my counts. But oh, of Accenture. But uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching. Ray, safe travels back from Dubai, and um, we'll see you next Friday. you yeah, we'll
0: see folks in the green room. Bye. Bye.